Today's episode of the Press Box on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. They're now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of the biggest cities like New York and L.A., and they're launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh, hot meals to hospitals and clinics, fighting on the front lines, while keeping local restaurants in business as well. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us, and you can help keep your local restaurants alive. Go to theringer.com slash WCK to donate, please. We're trying to raise $250,000, and if you have the means, it's an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. The money goes directly to World Central Kitchen, and it's a charitable donation. Once again, that's theringer.com slash WCK. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer here. We got a lot of great stuff to get to today. We'll talk about the slow death of beloved indie bookstores during the coronavirus. We'll talk about the latest round of COVID media hell, the cuts and furloughs now reaching writers like SB Nation's Spencer Hall. Plus, David guesses a strain pun headline and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, let's begin here. I'm not sure if you've read any articles on The Ringer about this, but there was a Michael Jordan documentary on ESPN last night. <laughs> yes, I'm aware, dimly aware. It's called The Last Dance, the first two of 10 parts aired on the network last night, creating a mother load of Twitter content. Let's listen to one clip from episode one. I am cursed with this mentality of competitiveness. Competition was an addiction. Every day was a battle. Dennis, get up here. Boom. They don't hear it. See Dennis for 48 hours. No matter what we did, it seemed like it was a story. Scotty was being selfish. When the trust is broken, it's sort of shocking. I never hated Scotty. Six championships in eight years. We were the greatest team ever. What time is it? I'm going to ridicule you until you get on the same level with me. You're making a free run of me. It was his team. My mentality was to go out and win at any cost. David, let's do our disclosures. Uh, Jason Hare, who is the director of The Last Dance, directed the Andre the Giant doc for The Ringer. And you, David, were one of its primary talking heads. Um, first impressions of The Last Dance? Ooh, um, listen, I think I went in, and maybe you can sympathize with this. I think so much of my time in uh, isolation, or not isolation, in quarantine, has, I think, made me less jaded than I was before. But I did go into... I, <laughs> Somehow I was able to rekindle that flame of jadedness at the beginning of this one. I I think my expect I think just hearing everybody else so excited about it I think affected my me at my at the entry point. But it took me all about forty five seconds to completely throw all that aside. It was, um, you know, I feel totally comfortable in saying it's exactly what the this this tortured world needs right now. So I mean I I I enjoyed it. It felt very and maybe it has to do with the, the fact that it was obviously based. Uh, largely on this archival footage from the 97 98 uh, NBA season but it you know I, I don't want to go like contribute a quote to the movie poster or anything but it because I, I don't mean this to be too over the top but it did feel sort of timeless and the fact that like it felt it it felt like despite the fact that I could see the age of Michael Jordan being interviewed in front of us it felt like it could have been existed five or ten years ago but it also felt partly because of 
the presentation and partly because of well just my knowledge it felt very very modern and and you know forward looking as well I agree. I thought hair has a really good way of blending new footage and old footage together. Mm -hmm. There's a very subtle technique in that, right? So you don't feel like you do in a lot of sports docs where it's like, here is talking head and then here is old, old footage. Here is talking head. Here is old footage. It all kind of blended together. Did you have that moment when they were, when Michael Jordan's parents popped up and I was like, man, his mom looks great. And then it was his dad. And I was like, I remember his dad dying. And then I was like, wait, is that, is I couldn't, I didn't even Google. I was like, I don't know if his mom's alive or not. I don't know if this is new footage or old footage of his mom, but it all just sort of went seamlessly from brothers to parents back to Michael Jordan. And for all I know, everything except Jordan was 20 years old, but uh, (laughs) you, you sure couldn't tell couple of initial impressions when it started that viewer discretion is advised bit we got mm. before the first episode we had a real watching nypd blue in the 90s <laughs> energy to it that's a timeless qualifier as well it's a timeless warning it was wild just to see present day michael jordan mm-hmm. y- you know you and i and the ringer verse at large has been in this place where we've heard magic johnson and larry bird basically participate in in sort of profiles and and tv stuff and books and all that for decades now since they stopped playing in the nba and michael jordan has not and i think there's something kind of amazing when someone who's reluctant to participate in their own nostalgia finally gives in Mm -hmm. i don't know why i had this analogy came to mind during the show but like harrison ford remember for years harrison ford was like hey nerds I'm not Han Solo. Like, yeah. please, please never mention Star Wars to me or just really or indie or anything. I just don't even like, I'm not that guy. I don't want to do this. I'm way too cool for that. And then Harrison yeah. Ford hit that point. I think when his career finally needed him to hit that point where he's like, Hey, I was, I'm Han Solo again. I'm back. <laughs> and I will to some level, like, you know, talk to you about what that was like. And I feel like Michael well, Jordan hit that moment in this and it was weird to watch. Well, yeah, I think the real, the real perfect moment in the Harrison Ford, well, I don't know if Renaissance is the right word, but it's not, it's not just when he started portraying Han Solo again, but it's when he started responding to interview questions about what Indi- what Indiana Jones would do. Like about like the character, like about the, about, about the, like the, the, how true the new script pitches were to the character or the new, the new, like, you know, the reboots or whatever. And he was like, or no, when he, yeah, he was like, guys, you don't understand. I am Indiana Jones. There cannot be another Indiana Jones. There can be no prequels. (laughs) There can be no spinoffs. I, you know, that, that was, that was, I think that putting, planting his flag in a place that no one ever thought he would. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different people talking about, I mean, a lot of people are talking about the Jordan side of that and, and, uh, Certainly, there's a lot of different reasons. You're right about Michael Jordan. I mean, sorry, about Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. There was always the feeling. I mean, Magic Johnson is Magic Johnson. You know, I mean, he's uh, presumably available for whatever documentary or, or you know, retrospective that you pitch him. Um, Larry Bird always had a little bit of reluctance. It sort of built into his character, right? And there was a part of me, I think, that always just assumed that, the reluct- or that, that his availability was based on his the fact that he was still being paid by the NBA, right? I mean, that he was working for the Indiana yes. Pacers for so long, but Michael Jordan's, you know, been a team owner forever. I mean, he's not like, it's not like he's a separate thing. And it sort of, I guess you look, you, when you think about it, that's what, that's a picture of what real sort of reluctance to be going camera looks like. Right. And, you know, there's moments where like at his 
uh, Hall of Fame induction, a sort of notorious moment for Michael Jordan, where you kind of think it's probably best that he's not out in front of the public eye a whole lot. Or maybe this is like, you know, <laughs> it's some sort of mutually assured destruction situation where we're just choosing, everyone has just chosen not to put him on camera. But then you see him, you know, like Kobe's memorial, and you're just like, no, this guy, I mean, there's he should be in front of us all day, every day. You know, I mean, he's he is such a, an icon, and, and he still embodies that so fully. I think that, I mean, maybe we're seeing the most real version of Michael Jordan right in, in this in this documentary, but there is something kind of amazing to see him. You know, there's comfortable and then there's comfortable, but sitting in that plush chair and just sort of like bullshitting with the with director. The whiskey. Don't forget the whiskey. Yeah, to with his the whiskey right. is the. Uh, I mean, that's real comfort in a very kind of literal way, and and it's interesting to see him that way. Can I indelicately say that I didn't think Michael Jordan looked great in a couple of those just physically great in a couple of those things, at least compared to Scottie Pippen and other members of his era, he looked extremely middle-aged. Yeah. Which is a real mortality of your heroes moment for me. Yeah. I, I, I gotta be honest. I, maybe this is part of my skepticism or my, my, you know, whatever my, my trepidation going in. I thought he would, I thought he looked great compared to what I thought, what I was expecting. He looked better than I, than I was anticipating. Um, I remember when Michael Jordan retired, and I believe it was his for his last Bulls retirement, where someone asked him what he was going to do, and he said his like top priority was to grow a pot belly. It was <laughs> like for like for all of his life, he had been so physically active that just like having a gut was like unthinkable. It was just impossible, and he was really looking forward to that. And it's good to see that he sort of you know finally achieved his dreams and more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, these documentaries especially when they're about a period that you and I knew know so well and mm-hmm. experienced. I mean, this is you and I going to the Luby's cafeteria line and just having our own childhood <laughs> and teenage years served up to us piping hot on the tray. Oh my God. Tapioca pudding, just like high fives all around. Exactly. One thing they do is they take, take moments that we know and they kind of resell them to another generation. And the big one in this early episode was Jordan in the 86 playoffs against the Celtics, scoring 49 and then 63 points in games one and two. And it was funny because I was like looking at Twitter last night, Larry Bird used the phrase God disguised as Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. Now, that is a super famous quote that Larry said at the time. Right. (laughs) In fact, it's so famous that like two years ago, there was an undefeated piece about the quote. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But for this whole other generation that does not know Jordan's career in that kind of granular depth. It's like, Oh, Oh wow. That's the greatest quote I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, guess what? Larry said it after the game. <laughs> <laughs> so I just love, I just sort of love watching. I mean, sometimes that's annoying to me to be like, come on, you know that. Right. But last night that was almost touching. Cause Larry, not only did he bring it up, Larry said it anew, right? Larry was willing to, to reboot the quote himself in real time. Yeah. Well, I mean, from a personal experience, I've, I've definitely been there sitting in a chair. I don't even remember if it happened with Jason on Andre or not, but certainly I've sat in the chair where, where, where the interviewer was like, Hey, you wrote this thing. Do you mind just saying it either, either explicitly <laughs> or implicitly, you know, this um, is how the sausage is made folks right here. I don't, I don't fault them at all in this documentary for really like milking all of the, uh, the, the, you know, metaphorical significance out of that phrase, because if what we saw on screen was correct, it looked like the actual news piece about that interaction was just headlined something to the effect of bird impressed by Jordan 
So and they like popped up on the screen when he had like the greatest quote of all time, and the the Boston Herald or whatever was just like bird impressed, and then just, <laughs> just shuffle on. Yeah, I loved it. Love uh, deathless newspaper headline yeah. to really capture the moment. The yeah. um other thing documentaries like this do is sort of make an implicit argument, and I think the one we saw at the beginning of episode two was Scottie Pippen was really freaking good, oh. and. The, the one bad note to me was somebody saying he was Robin to Michael's Batman. Mm-mm. I guess that's right, but it's almost like, you know, Batman to to Jordan's Superman, right? He he was mortal, but barely, you mm-hmm. know, and people forget how great Scottie Pippen was. You know, he has been he is he was he was forgotten at the time, as we found out from his salary thing where he was making less money than Luke Longley that mm-hmm. year. but um. That argument to me is important. Uh, the yeah. documentary didn't underline it so much, but it definitely made it. I feel like that's what everybody's talking about, or that's one of the big takeaways from night one. And and, and so I think that it made the point clearly enough to let people to run with it. Um, you know, Jordan, I mean, you could probably read into it a million different ways, but Jordan himself didn't seem to make the case that loudly, right? I mean, he sort of was like, it, it, we kind of came in, if memory serves, at the tail end of a, of a sentence or a thought about it. And he's like, and that's why I've always considered him my best teammate where it's like, that's your, just the framing of that is already sort of putting him in the second category that you're, yeah. that you, Brian Curtis have just argued that we should be lifting him out of and what the documentary is arguing. We should lift him out of as well. Right. Everything else. And if you read the ringer ran a, a piece from Bill's book, the book of basketball about, you know, how good Pippen was today or last night, actually to kind of go along with that release. And um, there's a, a lot of cool quotes from team USA from the dream team where he just kind of went in as one of the, you know, they, they told the story that he just kind of went in as one of the guys. And within like a couple of days, it was clear he was, you know, the second best player on the team and, and everybody saw it. Right. I mean, like Stockton Malone, like everybody there was just like, Oh shit. Like this is the, you know, this guy's the best. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think you could say it loudly enough. I, I think the, I think that you're right that they did sort of, you know, but they left a little bit of room for, for negotiation, I guess, for the viewer, but, you know, that's it was the second episode of a giant documentary. It was it, that, the point was made. Uh, there are moments of, to me anyway, I don't know that I've read a lot of Michael Jordan biographies like mm-hmm. the Roland Lazenby thing that came out a couple years ago. Yeah, I've read more of the Jordan rules kind of in the moment, uh, all hot off the presses kind of books. So yeah. that idea that his competitiveness was stoked by competing with his brother for his father's attention. Mm-hmm. That was a real rosebud moment for me i'm sure that's been out there in the world but this idea that you're kind of a younger sibling and his dad even joked like i i would say michael was hopeless with a wrench you know and michael would get mad you know essentially and be Mm -hmm. like i have to be a great basketball player so my dad will pay attention to me and this was not you know your classic like absent father which we hear about with a lot of athletes or father who just you know was a bad guy and jordan was close to his dad by all accounts but it was just a subtle little thing of sibling rivalry. That was fascinating to me. Yeah, I don't know how many times it's been rehashed since then. Like you, have, I've, I've, I don't think I've read any full-fledged Jordan documentaries. I mean, uh, biographies, but I've, you know, I've consumed just about everything else I could have. Um, I don't know how many times Jordan himself has talked about it. But it was sort of amazing the degree to which he was sort of clear-eyed and open about it, too, right? That not it wasn't just his his brother and his family telling the story. It wasn't just sort of just, you know, just introductory you know, montage with a, you know, old fashioned violin playing in the background. I mean, this was just, this was Jordan himself saying like, yeah, that's why I'm so nuts. And that part of it was, uh, 
It's sort of surprising. As a child of the 90s, I think we look to documentaries like this because they recreate sensations you felt oh, yes. while oh, yes. watching. And for me, it was hearing the song Serious by Alan, the Alan Parsons Project, which is what played in the introductions of every Bulls game. Can we hear just a couple of seconds of this? Please. Man, when that note comes in, even last night, even that that is almost such a cliche of 90s Bulls documentaries, nostalgia, everything. And I was off the couch. I was like, oh, my God. Yes. Uh, the Ringer uh, also wrote a great piece about that introductory music like six months ago. Jake Maluli wrote it. Uh, we ran it. Um, I got to say it has an incredible, incredible lead art by Eric Foster, one of my favorite uh, artists I, I get to work with. But yes, there's nothing that evokes that. It's the music, just the the way that they just kind of let you stew in it for about 30 seconds. And then, you know, when the bass kicks in and they start the introductions all the way down to just the just the vanilla, like at guard six from North Carolina, six, six, Michael Jordan, where it's like he's just a man, you know, he's just a dude playing who plays a sport but we all know that like buried underneath that like straight man you know delivery is like oh we're about to see like a a greek god walk down the <laughs> walk down the ramp or whatever walk out of the tunnel i mean it's it's pretty incredible i mean it, there's there's nothing that can recreate they, they, i mean that they, they can go to that feeling very few things in life feel the way that that felt for us that that lived through it. And you're right. It is. I mean, you implied this. I saw Scott Van Pelt actually say it after, you know, on sports center after the show, he's like, you know, there's a lot of people who are just discovering this information for the first time or all these feelings or whatever else. And I don't know why, but it was kind of like halting to hear him say it, but it is, it is interesting. I mean, I just, I just can't even wrap my, maybe, I mean, maybe Almeida or somebody can, can answer the question. I can't even wrap my head around the experiencing some of these things for the first time some of the big beats of the first two episodes were things that I already knew. I remember all the conversation about Scotty Pippen's salary, but I, again, I was what 12 when, when those conversations were going on. Um, I, I mean, I'm guessing at the, I don't even know. And then, you know, there were, you know, the, all the conversation, I mean, all this backstory where there were so many moments where it was like the, the, the documentary took a turn on the thing that I knew so well, but it didn't feel overheated. It felt like I just felt this great sense of like, a personal accomplishment that I remembered the thing that I knew what the original feeling was like, and we're reliving it now. I don't know. It's, it's just such a, such a wild sensation when he's different, right. Than a lot of older subjects like that, because like if you do a documentary about Bo Jackson, which 30 for 30 actually did, you know, Bo Jackson is kind of a memory to people. Now, Michael Jordan is still a shoe. <laughs> he's still a silhouette, right? Uh, you know, there's a thing of like, he's just much more present than a lot of people that get, recreated in this way mm -hmm. and i just think that is that's like a really interesting facet of this i did want to spend a second talking about the documentary's treatment of jerry Krause. he was the general manager <laughs> of the bulls uh a short dumpy guy we hear in the documentary uh who built those great bulls teams and then in this final season 1997 and 1998 forcibly tore them apart Mm -hmm. for reasons 
that still kind of remain mysterious even after watching the doc. Jerry Krause died two years ago, three years ago. So he is not around to defend himself uh, from the stomping he gets from everybody in this doc. What did you make of those parts of the show? Um, I don't know if they, I don't know if, if I came away more sympathetic to him um, than I went in, uh, but he certainly was humanized in the documentary, both from like the kind of part with Scottie Pippen hurling insults at him from the other end of the bus to just seeing him on camera <laughs> sort of like conduct, like, like living and breathing. You know, that was actually some of the, of all of the things that I went in knowing or I went in remembering or having experience, actually seeing videotape of Jerry Krause was one of the one thing that I did not, I realized very quickly. I had not seen a lot of video of him, seen a lot of photos of him. Most of them, you know, dot matrix or whatever. I mean, like halftone photos I mean, from the photo, from the newspaper. But, but yeah, I, there was certainly, he certainly gained a sort of level of humanity in my eyes, but you're right. I mean, there's still the mystery as to why he did it. I think that we're used to all these second and third degree interpretations. I I don't know that in, there's any any insight into his mind or soul that would be that would change the just the general feeling that you get from understanding what the, I mean from the surface read, which was I don't want to be I don't want to have a twenty year rebuild, so I'm going to reboot this as quickly as possible, which is something that he actually said on the record later on. Um, that's sort of as damning as something more nefarious would be, right? I mean. It's one thing to say, I mean, listen, I, as a Dallas Mavericks fan, I lived through this when we won a championship and then Mark Cuban was like, I'm not going to overpay to keep all these guys around and, and try to go back and get, you know, take another run at the ring. You remember this very well, Brian. I know. Yep. But, you know, we were talking about letting, you know, J.J. Barea go. I don't even remember who was walking out Tyson the door. Tyson Chandler. At that point. Ty, Tyson Chandler was the big one. But there, were, but there were, you know, there were other names as well who sort of walked out. Deshaun Stevenson, right? I mean, there were some other guys who kind of walked out. Peja, I think was on the, but, but like, there's a difference between even that, which was just crushing and heartbreaking, and it turned out totally wrongheaded, and doing it when you have the greatest player of all time and potentially the two best players in the NBA. You know, like what, like it's kind of a and, and the idea that Jordan was gonna decided not to play in large part because Pippen and 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 then Phil Jackson, the coach, weren't gonna come back. Isn't it sort of amazing that there wasn't like like the Washington Wizards when they took Jordan on as a you know as a decision maker slash player sometime later, part owner, it's kind of amazing that there wasn't a, the Charlotte Hornets or someone didn't just say like, we'll just hire all of you at once. So let's just run it. Let's run it back over here. You know? Totally. And by the way, looking back at that era f with binoculars from 2020, isn't it amazing that Jerry freaking Krause could tell Michael Jordan what to do? Because if that happened today and we only have to look at the example of LeBron James, that GM would be fired. As soon oh, as yeah. that GM displeased somebody of Michael Jordan's stature, forget it, Scottie Pippen's stature, that dude would be gone. That dude would not have power over the most famous athlete in the world or even the hundredth famous, most famous athlete in the mm -hmm. world. And I almost wish the documentary, again, we've seen 20% of this. So it's a little hard to even review this. It's like, you know, reading the first couple chapters of a book. But to me, there's a great opportunity here to just plant your foot and explain. Because that's one of the biggest things that's happened. I think I've read, you know, oh, the Jordan was different because it was a world of TV and newspapers versus the internet and Twitter and all this stuff. But to me, that's a, that is the most profound and obvious difference is that Jerry Krause could tell Michael Jordan what was going to happen and not the other way around. I could read a 20,000 word long form extravaganza about that one moment in the documentary where Jordan sees Jerry Krause pass by off camera as he's like, they're getting ready to go out for warmups or whatever. And he's like, hey, Jerry, you going to come warm up with us? And Jerry's like, 
Like, yeah, of course, you know, as a joke. And then, and Jordan's like, they got to lower the rims. But there's, but even Jordan said it. You could tell in the moment that Jordan was the only person within 100 yards that could have possibly said those words to him, even as a joke. <laughs> but that even Jordan had a certain sort of like juvenile uncertainty or reluctance to the way he was speaking. And like he's talking to his teacher, like he's talking to his boss, like he's trying to clown and, you know, whatever. And, and, uh, yeah, it was there, there was a lot there. It, it was really, really telling. And I think that, I mean, you know, certainly Jerry Krause has been, you know, dogged in history and in the media at the time and seems to be a little bit impervious to it. So I don't know, you know, if there's what we could say that would change, you know, that that would even with him there, not there to defend himself. I don't know how much defending he really needs, but but it it is it is a very I mean, he he is a. He is a singular figure in a lot of ways because you're right. It is impossible for him to have existed to to exist in the modern era. Also, I think in a documentary like this, and and this is not Hare's creation. This is real. He's the villain. You need a villain. Mm -hmm. And you know, Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and company winning a sixth NBA title is a pretty smooth, you know, glide path. Mm -hmm. So you need especially you just, especially when the documentary begins or, or more or less begins with Michael Jordan saying, "We're going to go win our sixth or sixth championship and then you know what the ending is going to be <laughs> well, we all know this happened right right i mean i will say this and i think i may depart from from some people at least i've seen on twitter maybe even some people at the ringer i'm with darnell mayberry of the athletic on this i don't feel 20 percent of the way in that i have seen a truly great transcendent documentary yet i'm not saying this won't get there but you know to me i thought that first episode to me was a little kind of flat and almost kind of picked up around the 40 minute mark. I think that's when he had that great game against Milwaukee as a rookie. And I kind of like oh, yeah. woke up a little bit. It had the kind of prestige doc thing of where you bring really famous people on to say something you really didn't need to make them say like Billy Packer, the old CBS announcer came on and said that the North Carolina Georgetown NCAA title game where Jordan hit the winning shot was a really good game. <laughs> that's fine. We could have just left Billy on the cutting room floor. No offense to Billy. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd argue if you have Jordan, Jordan, the guy, you really don't need that as much. When we yeah. did Andre, the giant Andre's long gone rest in power, Andre, the giant. So you actually need people <laughs> to tell you how great Andre, the giant was, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to have his viewpoint in the documentary. Whereas this, I might've just said, look, I've got Michael. I want Scotty. I want Rodman. I, I want all that. I want Phil. I want all that stuff. But I almost want to just chop away a lot of what we have. If we need to bring Barack Obama in and Bill Clinton in, great. But I almost want to make this a little bit leaner and almost go very Jordan. If we're going Jordan centric, I want to go really Jordan centric. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I have no idea if time considerations are part of any of that. Certainly, you know, as a writer, the same as a documentarian, if someone's just like take up as much time as you need, I mean, you know, you know, fill up as much time as you as you feel is necessary, then you're going to run long, right? Um, and part of I think showing the power of Michael Jordan for, to a new generation is both showing the sort of age of some of the people who are around and involved, you know, the, the, the sort of breadth of the story, but also just to, I mean, you have to get Bill Clinton, you have to get Barack Obama, you have to get everybody that you can in there just because their availability speaks more to his significance to a new, to a younger viewer, I think, than, than anything that you could say that Billy Packer could say, or even Michael Jordan could say about himself. Yeah. I, and it brings up this bigger idea I wanted to ask you about too, before we get out of here on this topic, this whole idea of the authorized biography style of sports documentary. Mm. Essentially, when you make 
a sports documentary these days. You need footage, right? So in a way, you are kind of saying, hey, I'm going to have to get the sign-off of the NBA or the sign-off of whatever league it is because I mm-hmm. can't do a sports documentary without showing the people playing sports. In this case, there was all this archival footage that was sitting in a vault, and it was only going to be released with Michael Jordan's express permission. Yes. So if I'm writing a book about Michael Jordan, I can just go write that. I don't need Michael Jordan's help. It'd be nice, but I don't need Michael Jordan's help. When you make a documentary, you almost have, it almost has to be an authorized biography unless you're just going totally off-road, right? Mm-hmm. So what's interesting is I thought a lot of the pieces that talked about how the filmmakers got Michael Jordan glossed over that fact a little bit. They got Michael Jordan, and part of getting Michael Jordan was making Michael Jordan's business associates the executive, two of the executive producers of this project, <laughs> right? You are getting, you are not going to get Michael Jordan like Wright Thompson got him for an ESPN magazine piece a couple of years ago. You are going into business of a sort with Michael Jordan to make this yes. documentary. That's not a bad thing necessarily. Authorized mm-hmm. biographies can be really revealing, and this one already is, I think. But I think it's when, as this thing kind of unfolds, it's worth thinking about the picture that's being painted and how it comes out of that transaction mm-hmm. as much as anything else. Yeah. A couple of things. I mean, sometimes those, I mean, just for the record, sometimes those producer, executive producer, whatever credits are a little bit ceremonial uh, and more about like the amount of money that the person gets to the, on the back end than, than about what their actual involvement is in the, in the production. But though I will say Jordan associate Curtis Falk, who's one of those yes. executive producers um, told, or excuse me, Curtis Polk told Richard Deitch that they were essentially giving notes and back and forth yeah. on early cuts, of the episodes. So sure. I think it's fair to say that team Jordan had influence on what we were seeing on the screen. Uh, and Sam Smith, I think it was on sports center after the, after the second episode said, speaking in joyous terms, rapturous terms about, you know, the existence of this documentary said, this is the first time that Michael is, Jordan is, has gotten to tell the story his way. That other people have written these books. He had, Halber Sam had, but this is the first time Jordan's gotten to do it his way, which is, I think, about all you need to know. I mean, to, to in that regard, um, I think you're right. I think that it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's no, it's not, it's not necessarily you know some the wrong way to do things. Certainly, there can we're, we're going to get we're going to we get we get Jordan on camera for hours, you know, and we wouldn't have had that uh, otherwise. And a good documentarian, and again, you know. You know, all qualifications aside, Jason Hare is a great documentarian, and, and he and there'll be a, a good documentarian can can get someone to say something that they wouldn't have otherwise said, but that or that maybe they can get something someone to say something they don't even realize how revealing they're being or how surprising they're being or how you know what I mean. It, just because Jordan gets a sign off doesn't mean that he's going to necessarily mute all of the interesting things that the docu- that the documentary could have to say. Um, I do think, and I, this has nothing to do with any conversation I've had with Jason Hare, the director, or at all. I should want to make that really clear. I do think there's a degree to which we, I mean, we, you and I and, and people listening to this show should be very cognizant of, you know, the kind of third rail of journalism that's always going to be very, very touchy, you know, when, when, when you're dealing with a situation like this. And I think it's important, maybe even more so because of what I'm about to say, which as, which is, I don't think, I mean, for the most part, most of this generation, our, our 30 for 30 generation of documentarians didn't go to J school, you know? I mean, they're not, they're not journalists in the, in the traditional sense that we think about them. And certainly the audience does not expect some sort of 
median level of journalistic integrity. You know, maybe if you want to complain about something, maybe that's the first thing you would fall back on to complain on. I mean, the first ground you would complain on. But, you know, people don't watch the Tiger King on Netflix and expect that it's going to be the same thing that like a New York Times piece about him would give us, right? So I think we should hone in on it a lot, but I also don't think we should confuse that with like that being kind of the point of this, even this ESPN. I mean, who, like, do we expect some sort of like integrity out of the way that they're going to present it? I mean, you know, they put a lot of, they put a lot of stuff on that network. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting question anyway. Yeah. I don't, and I don't want to, I don't want to reduce a a really interesting documentary to a sleepy journalism ethics summit, which I, which I hope I never do. I just think there's a couple things here. One is that sports journalism, sports content, full stop has been in a way taken over by the participants themselves, right? The players tribune, so many kind of branded participatory profiles you see in other places, right? Where it's like, Mm -hmm. clearly like it's a, it's the player's company has kind of offered him up to the journalist in order to advertise the company or whatever it is, right? We just, there's so much of that going on right now. So I think we often, we often just, it's so ever present that we just forget right? That that's not a traditional journalistic encounter. And that's fine. I'll really to remember. I think it's more interesting here is when you see certain things happening, like there was a moment last night where Scotty Pippen, who we mentioned is wildly underpaid. He chose to have ankle surgery, not during the summer when he could Mm -hmm. recover and come back to the bulls, but he chose to do it at the beginning of the season because he was pissed off at the bulls for not paying him enough money. Now it's interesting. He says that in the documentary and Michael Jordan comes back, comes back to Michael Jordan. And it says, Michael says, I think that was selfish of Scotty to do that. Michael was being paid $33 million this season. Scotty Pippen was being paid two and a half million dollars. Okay. And and he says that was selfish of him to do that. And I'm, when I hear that, I want to go now, I want to ask Scotty Pippen, what do you think? What's your complicated response to that? You, You get to play with Michael Jordan you know who Michael Jordan is, right? You know that Michael Jordan Mm -hmm. just wants to win a sixth title. But what does it say to you that there's not 5% of Michael Jordan's, Michael Jordan that can come back and say, I understand that my guy here is incredibly underpaid and that maybe he has a right to do that even if it's a temporary inconvenience to me because I'm getting paid tons of money by Nike and everybody else, right? I'm making so much more than Scottie Pippen. So, I just want to, and again, this could unfurl into the next eight episodes. I don't know, but it's almost like, I don't just want to hear the Jordan centric view of the world there. I want to hear what Scottie Pippen thinks about that. And I want to hear what people think about Michael Jordan, you know, and again, 20% in maybe it unfurls, but that's just something, again, a way of thinking about this documentary. When we see what's on the screen, trying to connect it back to how it was made. I I totally agree. Totally agree. I, I think that that's an interesting case. I could talk about kind of the ins and outs of it. I feel like for 20 more minutes, but let's roll on. I mean, I, I but I, I agree. Let's keep an eye out for the, the, the Jordan centricness of the whole thing, because I want as much Jordan on my screen as humanly possible, but you're right. I don't need his, his opinion on everything, especially when his opinion is just seems sort of obvious. David, let us do the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod. Uh, David in the last dance, there was a shot of Bob Costas circa mm-hmm. 1980. I have stuck that in our Google doc. If you'd like to take a gander, he was working for WGN in Chicago and his hair had that very <laughs> late seventies, early eighties rounded 
kind of look. Mm-hmm. People had some uh, gentle fun with that, as they do whenever they see pics of celebrities uh, in another era. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write how Bob Costas was still able to build a sportscasting career in between all his Jedi training on Dagobah. <laughs> will always amaze me. Also, from the Michael Jordan content palooza, David, what would all this be without new shoes coming out? Oh, uh, my God. Nike surprised America by dropping the Jordan 5 Fire Red last night. I believe it was actually during the opening credits of the documentary. Uh, A range of responses. There was the pissed off response. I was dead ass in the shower when it dropped. There were the sort of (laughs) usual assortment of goat tweets. Jordan's been retired for nearly two decades and his shoes still sell out in minutes when they drop. That's legacy. And finally, the tweets that grappled with a shoe drop during a pandemic. I heard y'all used all y'all stimulus money. Thanks to Erica <laughs> for that one. And finally, David, I'm pleased to report that we're still doing Bono jokes. Here is a headline. Bono <laughs> helps Ireland search for coronavirus medical supplies. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. Is this wise? He doesn't have a great record of finding what he's looking for. Thanks oh to Bill Scheichen. If you haven't given up the Bono bit, Thank you for your service and congrats. You've made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. David and I are going to talk about the fall of the indie bookstore. But before that, a quick break from the ringer. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jamel Hill. And I'm Van Layton. We're proud to introduce our new podcast, The Wire, Way Down in the Hole. We're going to recap, break down, and analyze every episode of the iconic HBO hit series, The Wire, starting from the beginning with season one, First episodes hitting you on April 15th. Now, every podcast episode will include recaps, signature moments, foreshadowing, key character deep dives, little known facts, and also awards such as We Love This Show But, the Stringer Bell Fuckboy Award, my personal favorite, who won the episode, and more. So subscribe to The Wire Way Down in the Hole on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you in West Baltimore on April 15th. All right, David, in the notebook dump, I want to recommend that everybody go read Alex Shepard's piece that ran last week in the New Republic. It's a piece about people and things that are ravaged by the coronavirus you may not have thought of. The piece is called, Is This the End of the Indie Bookstore? And on the Zoom call right now, I can see your heart breaking in real time (laughs) at this idea that these places that you and I spend way too much time and money in um yeah treasure as unique snowflakes in the world of commerce and books mm-hmm. could be hit by this but guess what it's happening and like all the cuts we've seen with media it's probably only going to get worse here's something from this piece that i guess maybe i knew but i'd forgotten or maybe i didn't know at all the indie bookstore has had this big renaissance over the last 10 years oh yeah And it all starts with Barnes and Noble and Borders essentially wiping out a generation of bookstores back in the 90s. Then you had the Great Recession in 2008 and Amazon, which take a huge bite out of Borders and Barnes and Noble. So Mm -hmm. all these indies kind of rise up to fill the void. Uh, Barnes and Noble bought bought a bunch of Borders or bought all the Borders stores, closed down most of them, and then proceeded to close down some Barnes and Nobles, too. So there actually is geographically there was an opening. Shepard notes that there was a 49 percent growth in the number of bookstores between 2009 and, two, and 2019, which is mm-hmm. incredible. And I think what I love about these indie bookstores, and I'm sure you feel the same way, is that they were filled with books that have been chosen by actual humans rather than the computer sales algorithm. Mm-hmm. 
that so many of those big stores seem to be filled by. Yeah. I mean, I remember having the the instinct first. I mean, because we I grew up around uh, I grew up with actually an incredibly good uh, indie bookstore. It's actually it was a chain. I believe is gone now called Holly cookbook stores in uh, it was in Louisville, Kentucky where I grew up. And so I, that was, you know, but that was before Barnes and Noble. It was before borders and kind of had a low had, you know, it was, they were big stores. They felt almost, you know, the, the, the when the, when the borders and Barnes and Nobles rolled in, they felt a little bit familiar. Um, and then I worked obviously, or obviously to you at politics and prose bookstore in DC. And, and, yeah. um, but I remember having this conversation. These are conversations when it comes to indie bookstores. I mean, in used bookstores more so more so than indie bookstores. But but the idea of like, you know, we love we we love the Strand in New York City, right? It's like the biggest one of the biggest uh, used bookstores in the world, and you could just shop in there for days without you know ever retracing and we did. it. And we did. But there's something just incredibly gratifying about finding that perfect used bookstore that. Yes that either has your exact sensibility or just an identifiable sensibility that you respect. And the idea that like, instead of spending three days in the fiction section, you can spend 30 minutes reading every spine in the fiction section and feel like you've gone, that you've swallowed the whole thing. And you still, and you come away with actually more books in your hand because you've got to engage with everything there because it's all so well curated. And that's what a great indie bookstore can do that obviously a big, big box store could never do. Right. I mean, the, the feeling that you could just, man, I have, I have 20 minutes to kill before I meet somebody and I'm at, you know, McNally Jackson or whatever. I'm just going to go to a random shelf. Like literally, like, I don't care what the subject is. I don't care what part of the alphabet we're in. I'm just going to like gaze at this shelf from top to bottom for 20 minutes. And I'm going to feel, you know, like I've accomplished something by the end of it. And here's the companion point to that. Books may be the last unaggregatable part of American culture, right? You're not going to stumble onto a movie or a TV show in the same way that you can still stumble onto a book. I remember Mm -hmm. going, I was up there. In fact, I saw you. We were doing some debate podcasts up in New York, and I went to Books or Magic there on Smith Street in Brooklyn. Sure, great. And they had this Jay Hoberman book on movie culture in the age of Reagan. And I was Mm -hmm. like... This book is for, and it was put out on the front table. Imagine that (laughs) by a human. And I was like, wow, this is like exactly a book I want that I didn't know existed by an author. I love that. I didn't know had happened. That doesn't happen in anything, in any other part of culture, to my knowledge at this point in history. No, you would not be surprised by, uh, in the same way of a a blog post or a TV show, like you said, anything like that. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's, it's the feeling that, when you walk in and you, when you see a, a, the front table speaks to you, even again, like I said, if it's not exactly your sensibility, it speaks to you as like, like someone, you know, it makes you feel like you're part of, you know, you're part of a, a, a common culture. And, and it's, it seems almost like silly or cliche to say at this point, but in a way that like everybody commenting, everyone making the same Twitter joke does not make you feel part as, as much a part of a common <laughs> culture as uh, feeling like, you know, oh, this is the book that my friends are talking about. Maybe I should read it. Or maybe this is a book that I'll want to talk to somebody about. And I have a feeling that like, because this bookstore is a representation of, of a representative of our, you know, mental headspace that like, if I read it, then someone else will too. As you can imagine, these places are being hit really hard during coronavirus layoffs at the Strand and McNally Jackson, two of our old haunts in New York layoffs at Powell's in Portland, which is a truly amazing store. Um, and what these booksellers are trying to do, Shepard points out, is kind of maintain that level of actual human interaction during this time when mm-hmm. we cannot really interact with other humans particularly easily. 
our old pal Tom Roberge, who was at 100 Brian and David parties back in the day, now owns Riff Raff, a bookstore in Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah. He says, I don't want to make it out like I'm doing some community service, but people being able to email a business and talk to somebody, even if it's just email and interact when they're otherwise just shut up in their apartments, that is valuable. Mm-hmm. Novelist Ann Patchett, who runs Parnassus Books in Nashville, uh, had this quote. She said she wrote a piece for, um, for Airmail, and she said, when a friend of mine stuck in his tiny New York apartment told me he dreamed of being able to read the new Louise Erdrich book, I made that dream come true. I can solve nothing during this pandemic. I can save no one, but damn it, I can mail Patrick a copy of The Night Watchman. That is yeah. the touch of a small independent bookstore. It's true, and that I think it shows you exactly why they're all suffering so badly right now is what they can contribute is not a thing that you can, as valuable as all that stuff is, it's not an easy you know, A to A conversion in this new economic climate, right? I mean, I know we, we said McNally Jackson a couple of times. I'm, I knew Sarah McNally back in the day. Uh, very, we were great friends. I haven't talked to her in a while, certainly not since this stuff happened. But I know that she had to lay, lay off all of her staff, you know, at the beginning of, of I mean, this coronavirus thing and, and did it in conjunction, you know, after conversation with your union and from, from the, the workers union. And from what I gather, she's keeping them all on on um, keeping their medical insurance all active and plans to rehire them all the moment that she can, but sort of, I think, allowing them, but cutting them, you know, laying them off allows them to collect uh, unemployment and then, you know, she'll keep their insurance. And, and there's a lot of small businesses that are sort of finding that by, you know, what for whatever, that that's the best way forward. Yeah. And we should, you know, make, and this is obviously like, you know, we can talk about, we can talk about tax relief and we can talk about how Republicans have redefined the term small business over, you know, for, for three days, but you know, this is an actual small business, you know, yeah. I mean, this is a small business in, in the sense that these, these are the, who, the kind of companies that are really going to suffer right now yeah. and, and, and are generally exempt from our, um, from our coronavirus, uh, wall of shame. This is not but, Shake Shack that got like a small business loan. They got no. a $10 million loan and then they had to return the whole thing. They didn't need it, but the, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the best, I mean, everybody knows an independent bookstore. Everybody like has, I mean, I would assume everybody listening to this doesn't have any question about what we're talking about, but I always think about coffee shops. I mean, they're, they're often connected to the stores, but like you always want marvel at how coffee shops stay at business. Right. And it's like the best coffee shops are the one. And, and some, some coffee shops, you see that the way they stay in business is because they put a little placard by the front register that says like, you know, no laptops between mm-hmm. so-and-so hours or no laptops on the weekends, because that's the key to like what the, the, how to go out of business. The best, the best coffee shops, are the ones where it's just like, there are laptops open, there's no rules about laptops. And yet somehow it just, the flow is constant. The, like the, the vibe is awake. Uh, people are, you know, people are, are always in and out and ordering and there's no need to, to, you know, put anybody on alert because everything seems to be working okay, you know, um, even even with the laptops going. And that's sort of like how the, a great used bookstore is. It's like it's a marvel that it ever worked, right? It's a marvel. Yes. that I mean, and that you, could, that you would go in and actually just like an employee would be there to help you, you know, and you could like have a conversation with a human being. Yeah. And by the way, you hear in a lot of, you see in a lot of these stories, something that I experienced over and over again full, I mean, firsthand working at, at indie bookstores is that half of your time, if you're working the floor, is spent talking to people who have no intention of buying a book either, right? I mean, it's the sort of people that just like, that inhabit the bookstore, you know, or that just are wandering by or, or want to see what's out. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a wonder that it, it's a wonder that they ever worked. Um, and it's a, 
they always provide an incredible service to our society, even if they you're not in the book buying market. And, you know, in some ways, they were always going to be more precarious than everything else. It was only the, the massive success of entrepreneurs like Sarah McNally who made it seem so feasible to everybody else. But it's also part of this sort of like the shabby chic economy sort of that we all want this like old fashioned sort of retro yep. thing. We're like driving, riding around with bicycles with giant front wheels and we're going to bookstores, you know, and, and, uh, <laughs> and, and it's, it's a miracle that, that it worked as well as it did. And I can only hope that it will continue. I actually think that in whatever economy results out of this, that in so much as we're like leaving our houses to shop at all, there'll be more room for places like that. I just hope that there's more of a safety net in place either from our government or from local economies that'll make them make it a less precarious enterprise. One quick uh, additional note of media hell before we get out of here. This is the uh, sports writer edition. Last Friday, SB Nation furloughed 20 employees, one fifth of the site's full time staff for three months, right? Three months. That's 25% of your pay uh, in 2020 gone. Vox Media also cut 40 additional non editorial employees. Furloughs begin May 1. I bring this up because I think we're now hitting another stage of the sports writer period of awfulness, right? We had hit this one stage where you began to see people at fan graphs. You began to see people at local newspapers suffering, uh, furloughs at Gannett and other, and other chains like that. Now you're hitting the kind of super famous tier of sports writers like Spencer Hall, who was one of these people who got caught up in this over at banner society. And I don't, and I don't, I don't mean to put him on a pedestal that's that his situation is any more important or worse or whatever than anybody else's. Cause I don't, I don't believe that. I just think this is where this is going next, right? It's going to be people that are really big that you're like, how did that person get furloughed? All right, David, let's do the, um, let's do David Shoemaker guesses strain pun headline. Tuesday's headline about stay at home scoff laws in Australia was we'll fight them on the breaches. Today's <laughs> headline comes from our great friend and spiritual advisor, Michael Solomon from the New York post. David, a Las Vegas-based gentleman's club called Little Darlings tried to remain open in the early days of the <laughs> pandemic. I'll spare you the details as of how, but that experiment is now over for obvious reasons. Little Darlings put up a punny sign to announce they're no longer open. And that sign was borrowed by the New York Post for a headline. What was the New York Post's strained pun headline? Woo! Um, okay. Sorry, uh we're... We are, uh, it's not closed, I hope. Uh, we're, we're, clo uh, clo sorry, we're, this is a gentleman's uh, club. Sorry, we're clothed for business. Sorry, we're clothed. Yeah. Sorry, we're clothed. That's fantastic. We're back Thursday, folks. We're going to talk about the NFL draft as a content machine sequel to the Jordan doc. Plus answer your listener mail. Send it now. And of course we'll have more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian.